if the ancients could see our prejudices that we bring to the book, they would just laugh at us. They'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why would you not put the book in its to its best advantage? Why not tell the story to really highlight what God has done and, and to highlight his uh, work of redemption? Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host who's a little under the weather today, but I know he'll he will dig deep for this interview, James Dalzell. James, I, I normally ask you how you're doing, but um, how are you doing? You've, well, you've been forewarned. Um, I'm all right. I'm glad to be here. And uh, and I, I know I'm your co-host, but I was thinking with our guest today, we could almost make him the honorary Old Testament co-host because he's uh, such a good personal friend and has been on a few times. We're thrilled to have him again. Well, that's yeah. going to go at the top of my resume. Honorary. <laughs> oh, yes. No, I, I I like it. He's gotten all these things added lately. He's now a, not just a professor, but a distinguished professor of Old Testament at Cairn University, and not not just a uh, a guest, a an an honorary co-host who's a guest uh, on theology on the go. So we are talking. Uh, once again, to our our good friend Gary Snicker, who is distinguished professor of Old Testament at Cairn University, he's an author of a number of books. We've had him on before to talk about the Torah story and Old Testament use of the Old Testament, and today we have him on to talk about a a new book that's coming out very soon called um, Old Testament Narrative Books. Is that is that the full title, Gary? I'm, I'm Old Testament Narrative Books, and yeah, the, it the is subtitle is um, the Israel Story. The Israel story, right? So it fits in with the Torah story published by uh, B and H. And so, Gary, thanks, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you both so much. Uh, I'm I'm glad to be here. And you know, Th- Thomas Jefferson didn't even put on his gravestone that he was the president of the U.S. And so I- I'm thinking about putting this co-host <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. You're a big gravestone, Gary, yeah. for all of your honorary <laughs> and distinguished. Uh, <laughs> hey, before we get into this particular uh, volume, Gary, that you've authored that's that's coming out late summer, uh, early fall, uh, can we can we talk about the series? Because this book, it, and am I right that this is the debut book in the series that you are co-editing? Uh, for B&H Academic. Can you say a brief word about the series, what you what you are aiming to do with this uh, new series, and then we can get into your volume? Yeah, thanks, James. Yeah, um, I got, got talking with B&H, and they wanted to do a series of textbooks that were short textbooks, and these are all focused on, uh, we call the series Scripture Connections. Um, and my, um, my co-editor, I'm very thankful for him. He's a very experienced uh, co-editor, Mark Strauss. So this is my my first uh, opportunity to be an editor of something like this. So we've we've gotten together um, just world class um, scholars to write each part uh, on the Pentateuch, Old Testament narratives, uh, Old Testament poetic and wisdom, Old Testament prophets, gospels. Uh, Acts and Paul and general letters, letters and revelation. The focus of the series is um, uh, on connections. So every single book of the Bible, we're putting attention toward ancient connections, gospel connections, life connections, and above all else, biblical connections. So there's uh, that's kind of the dedicated focus of the book is to 
helps students and ministers of the Word to see how each book of the Bible is connected in its ancient biblical world, and also how it um, connects to life and to the gospel of Christ. Gary, that that actually leads perfectly into my first question, which was going to be what's distinctive about this volume. There are other textbooks and certainly other commentaries on the books that you're covering here, but I think I think you've touched on what makes this distinctive. I'm wondering, though, are are you prioritizing any of those connections? Um, is it is it uh, are you trying to make the biblical connections first, the life connections first? Uh, how 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 does it sort of work in order? How is it structured in the book? Well, each um, uh, there's some of the traditional things, uh, date and message of each book, but then uh, and also interpretive overview. In the interpretive overview. We'll get into each of those things, but then there's a dedicated section to each of, uh, of, well, I guess I'll say it this way. Along the way, there's ancient connections, and those are mostly um, actually ancient writings, so that we kind of bring into conversation with the interpretive overview of the book. And then there's a dedicated separate section in each chapter on biblical connections, uh, where we put special emphasis on that, on life connections and on gospel connections. So one of the things that you talk about early on, and I know this is something that it, people in your field take for granted, but I often find that maybe people reading their Bibles without the benefit of, of some of these helps um, find it difficult. You, you mentioned right at the outset, these books, the books that you're dealing with in this in this um, textbook are often written in a dischronological way. In other words, they're not, they're not, although, although they're, they're historical narratives, and we often call them the historical books, but they're 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 written with a theological purpose. So sometimes the events are presented in a different order. You give examples of that: <clears throat> uh, Moses um, in Exodus thirty-three going to the tabernacle, but the tabernacle isn't the, the the record of its building doesn't occur until Exodus forty. These kinds of things. Um, so so what you're trying to do when you come to these books is. Talk a little bit about the history and about the ancient connections, but you're you're understanding that they're written from a theological um, perspective. Is that 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 seems to be a key sort of cornerstone to 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 the way you're going about your your exegesis here? Is that am I right in saying that? Yeah, for the genre of biblical narratives, and this applies to all biblical narratives, not just the ones I treat in this book. Um, the theological messages first. And so it was not unique to the Bible to put things in the order that worked best for the story. Uh, that's mm -hmm. something that's pervasive outside the Bible. But the, the Bible does that too. And I think that's where you're, you're right. Um, modern uh, students, modern uh, Christians, we don't really think that way. We kind of think, oh, yeah, it's laid out in order. So we just read through it. We, we need to stop sometimes and realize no, 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 this is not in its uh, original chronological sequence. This is historical, but it's been reframed to the best mm -hmm. advantage of the story. And so there's, um, you know, not everywhere in the Bible, but there's many, many cases. I mean, you mentioned some, but, you know, we, we, we just kind of read past the fact in Luke that John the Baptist gets arrested before Jesus gets baptized. And so, right. you know, that's not the order that it happened. That's the order that Luke's presenting his story in. Right, right. And 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 the only reason that creates tension in our minds or it raises 
questions of historicity is because we have certain assumptions coming to it. It's not that Luke got it wrong. It's actually a pretty obvious, um, obvious historical issue there that Luke wouldn't have gotten wrong. It's just that we bring a certain set of assumptions to it that, that he manifestly wasn't operating by. Yeah. And I think if the ancients could see our prejudices that we bring to the book, they would just laugh at us. They'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why would you not put the book in its to its best advantage? Why not tell the story to really highlight what God has done and, and to highlight his uh, work of redemption? So they would just scratch their heads at us moderns because we're so um, rigidly committed to this other way of um, narrating, so to speak. So to that to that point, Gary, I want to ask about one specific book in your in your account because this book uh, deals with you've divided it into two parts: the narratives of the rise and fall of the Hebrew kingdoms, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the narratives of exile and restoration, Ruth, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah chronicles. Now, the one that I wondered about, and maybe this was a good case study for what you've just described, Ruth begins in the time of the judges. And it, it says that right at the outset of the book. Um, and so why is that? And, and and again, maybe this is a good jumping off point to explain your methodology. Why is that in the narrative of exile and restoration rather than back next to judges where it is in our Bibles? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, the book of Ruth, so far as I know, does not have anything dischronological. But you're, you're right. Um, the storyteller here wants us to set this book in the days of the judges when it actually happened from the very first line. So we're we we already have right that sort of theological and historical setting to consider the story in, and we all know about the days of the judges when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So mm -hmm. then. From that point of view, Ruth is a very surprising book. But the editor, uh, excuse me, the story maker doesn't let on that it's um, an ancient book until the very climactic point of the book. It um, When Boaz is at the gate, you might remember that the, the narrator steps back and talks directly to the reader and says, now, back in ancient times, people used to uh, use the sandal in this way. So because the uh, story maker has to explain this ancient custom, then all of a sudden we realize this is a very old story being retold. And that helps us to um, contextualize it in a sense. And besides the fact that it's um, uh, told in exilic times, also the theme of the book is exile and return, right? The story of uh, Elimelech's family moving off onto sort of a self-exile and the return of just Naomi, the rest of the family's all dead, with her Moabite daughter-in-law in tow. And I'm going to use the King James translation here for this, but kind of what's standing behind a big part of this whole book is Deuteronomy 23, 6. And let me read this. Uh, I'm reading in the King James because it gets the syntax. It's the same syntax as the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not seek their peace or their prosperity all of thy days forever. So there is a command to never seek the peace or prosperity of the Moabites. They're excluded. And so for Naomi to bring Ruth into Israel, she's in a vulnerable situation where there's a command. Thou shalt not seek their good or their peace. Mm 
And so that's really the main tension of the book. And so we're not surprised that the narrator has used the word Moab seven times and the word Moabitus another seven times. And so even in chapter two, you know, the, um, uh, the worker, the supervisor of Boaz says to him, well, she's the Moabitess from Moab. And so mm -hmm. we we get it, right? She's a Moabite. And so uh, this, that's all over the story. And we need to know that to see what, right? How is uh, Boaz going to obey the law when the law says never to seek the good or the prosperity of a, a, a Moabitess forever? And so it creates some tensions between some of the other commandments in the Old Testament. Gary, I wanted to talk about even this whole collection, you've written a book, Torah Story. Now you have one subtitled The Israel Story. And uh, wanting to know how you how you situate this history of Israel, because you're not you're not so much dealing with Israel uh, in, in the Exodus period, in the immediate aftermath, but really Israel in the land and then exiled again from the land. Um, how how are we to situate this in a broader narrative? Um, how does this relate to Torah story? How does it relate to uh, the narrative of Messiah who's coming? And then what what are the points of continuity with what went before and what comes after that kind of ho holds these narratives together, even though they each have different features and and angles um is there something that holds them together and just in terms of their placement in the canon or in history yeah that's a, that's a great question you framed it probably in your question almost how i would answer it right it's between the torah story and the messiah story and the torah story is something like how will the word of god overcome the human revolution and we, we know how that resolves in the messiah story but I mean, this is a part of the, the Bible that many Christians neglect or don't connect. It's sort of, right, we're, we're so easy to do uh, creation, the fall of humans. And then we jump from Genesis 3 to the New Testament so often. And there's nothing wrong with that, uh, except for uh, it, it does when we do that consistently. It impoverish, impoverishes us as far as what even a Messiah is. And so the New Testament can become quite confusing because we're, we're we're Christians, we're Christ ones. We're following a Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, and the good news about him. And so it's really hard to make sense of the gospel, really, and Christianity without this Israel story. And the Israel story, you know, it's a little bit more complicated in a sense because it's built around kingdom exile and return. And so that seems like a simple enough story, but the theme running through it is the um, the fact that Israel's still in full rebellion, the people that God made a covenant with, they're in full rebellion, even after he exiles them and restores them. Uh, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah brings us to Jerusalem, and the people are in full rebellion. And we can see how uh, Malachi compliments this as he preaches against the people. And for us, we scratch our heads as readers and say, wow, it's like exile never happened. It's like they're exactly like their ancestors. And so we realize that at some point in the story, uh, the large story, the Israel story, that if God is going to fulfill his word that goes all the way back to the Torah story, he's going to have to do it some other way. These people do not get it. And so 
enter stage right, Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. So can I put the question the other way, Gary, and ask, um, so James asked, how does it connect to the Torah story? And what are some of the ways in which it contin- that, that story continues? And and maybe maybe another way to look at it is how does it connect in the New Testament story? You already you already framed it in terms of you know Israel's failure and Israel's exile, and even at the return in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're the same people with the same hearts, and it's at best you know a tent peg in the land. And Ezra says, "You're we're slaves, we're back, but we're slaves." Um, but but it's but isn't it more than just enter stage right because aren't there also themes and we talked about Ruth just a minute ago within the and, and in chronicles with with David aren't there also themes that are are telling us not just that this is leading to failure and we hope there's a solution on the horizon but but failure that is where where there is a particular messianic solution that is that is sort of threaded through that failure. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? So, in other words, yeah. it's it's not just we get to the end and it's an unfinished story. So we need to we need to know how it ends and and then and then Jesus appears, but actually Jesus is presented or the Messiah is presented also in a positive way as the solution throughout it. Yes, uh, I think that that's that's right. But what I don't want to diminish is how the exile, this huge watershed moment, it it seemed on all fronts to contradict the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. I mean, there's just the people are faced now with this terrible reality where they're being taunted by their captors, the Mesopotamians, and they're, they can look back to the Abrahamic covenant. And they're like, what did we miss? God said that he would give us this land forever to you and your seed. God said to David, um, your seed will sit on this throne forever. And so none of that's true. So all the symbols of God's fidelity seem to have uh, vanquished, uh, been vanquished by this exile. Uh, There's no land, there's no city, there's no temple, there's no king. And that's just the beginning because even when the people return, this period, this um, exilic period, right? Most of the people, 80% of them stay in exile forever, even till today. And so only 20% have returned by the uh, time of Christ. So the setting for Christ, this late second temple period, this is understood within uh, the context of the Old Testament story. That's how to make sense of it. And so when we come to the New Testament, For sure, there's a lot of people who had hopes like those in, say, uh, Psalms of Solomon 17, where Israel there sees itself as the servant who needs David to come rescue the servant. But that's not the story that the New Testament tells, and that's not the way Jesus is framed. He's framed as, yes, bringing to fulfillment um, the Abrahamic covenant in the sense that those who are children of Abraham are from every people. Um, And uh, when it comes to him being the son of David, he's not just David the victor. He's um, the suffering David. We see the servant and the uh, suffering David come together. So that, as I say, Jonathan, I know you know this, but there's um, a profound surprise 
-hmm. in all the people that were expecting a Messiah, because the sort of Messiah that Jesus of Nazareth was just broke the mold. And that's one of the things that's so brilliant about the gospel of Christ yeah. in the New Testament. No, that's, that's very well put. Gary, we're, we're um, nearing the end of our time. And uh, so I, I just want to ask a couple questions about the book. Um, you're, this is intended as a textbook. Is that right? Is it intended primarily for undergrads? I mean, as I looked through it, I've said this with the Torah story, and I and I don't mind saying it here. I, I think a, a, a range of people would benefit from this. These are books that many times people will even just skip over in their in their Bible reading, or or maybe pick a story or there because there obviously are some some memorable accounts, but not not reckon with these as entire books. And so I think this would be helpful for everyone. Having said that, I know that probably the the aim of it is is for students in a in a in a kind of formal setting yeah it's for um seminary students and or um college students who are in a formal uh biblical studies program uh, a theological curriculum and really um there's always right the sense of where ministers of the word can benefit from something like this because they're former students and so there's something as far as like um, you uh, pick up a book like this, a, a minister of the word can, um, it's like a refresher course, like going back to seminary for a week or something. And it's a kind of a shot in the arm, especially, you know, a book like this that is treating uh, some of the um, neglected and misunderstood parts of the, uh, the, the Christian scriptures. Well, it, it is uh, always a joy to welcome you on, Gary. I, I, I can, I can see we're all kind of on Zoom here, so I can see that James, uh, James, do you want to ask any more questions? I can see that you have other questions that are uh, inside you. No, I, I think you covered. I think we covered most of mine. Uh, I was only just going to make a remark about just its utility uh, as a textbook because it's it's not just that it can be used as a textbook, but it really has certain features that Gary has built into it. That I think really enhance its value that way, particularly particularly review questions, uh, which are not like five, but like more than twenty at the end of uh, of certain sections. That which is great because it allows professors to they can pick out of that what they want to use or build a, build kinds of assignments uh, off of that quizzes or short essays or it just seemed from a from a teaching standpoint uh, whether you were doing this in a Sunday school class or Bible study in your church or whether you were doing this in a college or seminary classroom that that Gary's built a book that not only gets at the narrative features uh, but also is designed in a way to advance uh, the learning and study of the reader. That was my. I was just more of an observation than anything. So I, I thought that was a very strong suit of the book. Yeah. Th thanks, James. I mean, it really. You're you're right. Um, any of your listeners who are not theological students, they could benefit from this. I mean, that's that's the way these introductory books are written. They're they really are written in this case to help people focus on the connections of these Old Testament narrative books, and that that can work for anybody. Gary, thanks again for taking some time to be with us. Always a joy to uh, see you, talk to you. Even better when we're in person, but we'll settle for this for now. And 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 uh, you know, I say it a lot, but 
I'm very grateful to the Lord, not most for your friendship, but also for your your work, which I've benefited from, and lots of people in my family and close close friends and students have benefited from too. So it's it's not in vain, and I uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, James and Jonathan, thank you so much. It's uh, it, it is a pleasure. I really enjoy seeing you guys, and um, I'm especially uh, boy, I'm getting a big head now with this assistant uh, honorary assistant. Yeah co-host thing so it's a heavy burden to bear but you know you just have to be humble before the lord i'll I'll pray about it (laughs) Thanks. thanks gary thank you gary all right bye